we are doing a series right now called In Defense of Christianity, where we're putting Christianity on trial. And really what this, this whole series is about has been looking at all the evidence that proves that God exists, the evidence that supports the, the claims of Christianity. Last week, we looked at creation and just how it, it's so com- complex and so intricately designed, all overwhelming evidence pointing to how there's a God that, that exists. And uh, this week, we're going to kind of shift a little bit and go from looking at everything out there to looking at the evidence inside here inside of all of us, that points to the existence of God. This morning's message is titled, Whispers of God in the Soul. And in our souls, there's, there's a lot of movement that happens inside of us. I'm not talking indigestion or that kind of movement. I'm talking, I'm talking like stirrings of the soul, desires, longings, um, things happening in here. If we listen closely to what's happening inside here, and then stop and ask why it's happening, we would discover something. We would discover that all these whisperings in our soul, these stirrings of the soul, are pointing out to us how there's more to life than what meets the eye. It would point out to us how there's a God out there who wants us to know him. The Bible explains it like this. It says, he, he has also set eternity in the human heart. He, set, he, he has set eternity inside of us. Deep within all of us are things that point to God, they point to the eternal, if we'll just stop and we'll just listen and then ask why. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do. You're here, we're going to stop, we're going we're gonna to look at what God's word says about these, these stirrings inside of us and figure out what, what they all, all mean. Um, the first bit of evidence within us is this uncanny ability to know right from wrong. This ability that we all have to know right from wrong. We live in a day and age where the, the teaching that's, that's becoming more and more common is what's called moral relativism. Moral relativism is basically this teaching that says there's no universal standard of what's right and what's wrong. What's right for you is right for you. What's wrong for you is wrong for you. Just don't try to push your beliefs on me. And so because this is the common uh, teaching, it's whatever you think is okay is totally okay. You just go out and you do it. And, and and who is anybody to tell you what you, you can or cannot do? And so one of the things that we have every year in, in Whatcom County is the, this little interesting bicycle ride that happens in downtown Bellingham. If you want to get your birthday suit and bike through downtown Bellingham with a bunch of people, who is anybody to tell you what you can or cannot do? If you're a student and you want to wear um, spaghetti straps and hardly any clothes to, to school, who are your teachers to tell you what you can and cannot wear? Just because, who, who are they to set standards for you? It, it, just because it's wrong for you doesn't make it wrong for me. That, that's the whole teaching. This is moral relativism. It says there's no standard. There's no absolute truth. There's no way of knowing what r- right from wrong, good from evil. And if there's no God, if the Bible's just some kind of made-up book, then you're 100% correct in, in, in this kind of belief that there's no right or wrong. A guy named uh, Dostoyevsky... I think I said that right. He's a 19th century Russian philosopher. He once wrote this. He said, if God does not exist, everything is permissible. Everything's permissible if God does not exist because there's no standard. There's no, nothing to measure what's right and wrong by. But there's one big problem with this whole moral relativism, and that's simply that it doesn't work. It doesn't matter how much you say you believe there's no right or wrong. At some point, you're going to find yourself demanding 
that, that others treat you a certain way. They're going to say something to you. They're going to do something to you that you believe to be very wrong, and you're not going to be okay with it. They're, someone will break into your house. They'll try to cut in front of you in traffic. They'll, they'll, they'll give you the finger even though you don't deserve it because you're being the good driver. And when that happens, you're not going to be thinking, oh, man, I don't feel very good about that. That makes me kind of upset, but eh, whatever. Who am I to tell them what they can or cannot do? There's no right and wrong. I don't know if you've ever read some of these um, on, on social media. There's these satirical, fictional articles put out by this web company called the Babylon Bee. Anybody hear, read some of these? Well, this last week, they, uh, they put out an article that really illustrated the point that no one really believes there's no right and wrong. And the fictional story went like this. Um, when self-described moral relativist and certified accountant John Hampson walked out of his local Walmart supercenter to discover his Ford Mustang GT being stolen, onlookers expected him to charge the thief and attempt to stop the carjacking. But Hampson doesn't believe in objective moral standards, and so acting in a manner consistent with his lack of beliefs in universal concepts of right and wrong, he merely began nodding in approval and clapping loudly for the man's clever method of jimmying his car door lock, forcing the door open, popping ignition, and starting the vehicle with a flathead screwdriver. Man, this guy is good, Samson said. Great job, dude. I applaud your willingness to take any action necessary for your own advancement at the expense of others. You're the real hero, carjacker guy. I am completely unable to condemn your actions, so I congratulate you on your initiative and creative problem solving and quickly and efficiently stealing my vehicle, bro. As the man sped off in the $38,000 car, Hampson attempted to get the bewildered card or crowd that had gathered around him to join him in a standing ovation for the carjacker's selfish behavior, which he called a completely natural human instinct that no one should condemn. It doesn't quite work that way, does it? Not quite. We all have beliefs about what constitutes right from wrong. You believe that it's wrong for someone to steal your stuff. You believe that it's wrong for someone to destroy your property. You believe it's wrong for someone to go on social media and just decide they're going to spread all these vicious lies and gossip about you simply because they feel like destroying your reputation. You believe that that's wrong. All of us believe there's a right and a wrong that everyone needs to follow. And some people will push back on this, though, and they'll say, well, what's right and wrong is simply a matter of conditioning. It doesn't really point to God. It's just a, it's just a matter of conditioning. It all depends on where you live or on your upbringing. Now, there's some truth to that to a point, but, but for the most part, it doesn't matter if you were born in 2000 B.C. or 2000 A.D., whether you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Christian, whether you live in China or in, in, in Peru, um, all people believe in a similar, generally speaking, believe in a similar right and wrong. All mankind, throughout all of history, believes that selfishness isn't something to be admired, that, that you should treat others the way that you want to be treated. And, and why is that? Why, why is there this, this sense of what's right and what's wrong? Well, the, the Bible has, has a lot to say on this, and it, it, it puts it like this. It says, even Gentiles, Gentiles are everybody that's not Jewish, so that's all of it. I think most of us are in the room, but... Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is, here's the key, key phrase, is written in their hearts. 
for their own conscience and thoughts, either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And according to God's word, the reason all, that we all share the same general understanding of what's right and what's wrong is because there's a God who has written it into our hearts. And others will come along and, and object that, well, no, this is just, you know, over millions of years, the human race has just been conditioned to do whatever it takes to survive. Our behavior has been programmed into us, so to speak, so that we'll do whatever it takes to survive. Well, if that was the case, then whenever you walk by, you're walking down the lake and you walk by somebody who's out in the water drowning, your, your first reaction would be just to keep walking because you're not going to put yourself at risk by going out there and rescuing somebody. But we all know that in that situation, there's something inside of us that says the right thing to do is to put your own interest aside for the sake of somebody else. And this ability to know right from wrong, it points to the existence of God, one who is truth, one who is right. The Bible calls him righteous, one who is the standard of what's right and wrong. Another big, a big piece of evidence inside of us um, that points to God is a heart that's stirred by beauty, a heart that's stirred by beauty. I, uh, one of the hobbies that I've enjoyed ever since I got my first camera way back in sixth grade is photography. Love photography. And one of the things I love about photography is that what, what you're, you're doing is it's kind of like you're, you're capturing beauty. And you, you see this, this beautiful something, scene, whatever, and, and you just simply click your camera and you forever have it in print, right? Or at least you have it on some hard drive with all the other thousands of pictures that you have that you'll never look at. But anyways, that's for another sermon. Over the years, I have I've taken some pictures that I find beautiful. And uh, I hope it's okay, but I'm going to take you on a little bit of a, a Rich Warner slideshow this morning, okay? Um, this first picture was taken about nine years ago. And this is Becky, my beautiful wife. Happy Mother's Day, babe. And this is Presley when she's about probably ten minutes old or so. And uh, I just got to say, so you, you're probably looking at this going, it does not look like Becky just delivered a baby. She, it was all five kids. It's like she had just, she got up in the morning, had her coffee, went for a little walk, and I mean, just looked great. Awesome. <laughs> not saying it wasn't hard work, okay? But, yeah. This next picture, though, is, um, it's Mount, it's uh, four or five summers ago, my family and I went hiking up Winchester Mountain. It's by the Twin Lakes. You get to the very top. It's treacherous, by the way. But you get to the very top, and all of a sudden, it just opens up to this whole panoramic scene of these, these mountains in the North Cascades that you don't typically see just by staying on the roads. That's Mount Larrabee in the background, and this picture does not do it justice, but it is so beautiful. It's amazing. This next picture is one of my uh, favorite pictures of my, my grandma, who recently passed away about two months ago. And this, is, this was taken about four years ago at her 90th birthday. And what I love about it is you can just, she's, she's got this look of content and satisfaction as her great-grandkids are gathered around her. She's getting ready to blow out the candles on her 90th birthday cake. It's just so beautiful. This next picture is Aaliyah when she was about two years old. And uh, this was actually before we even lived here, but we, were, we, were, we decided to do, do some blueberry picking up at uh, Barb's Berry Farm in Linden. And just this, this beautiful picture. Um, I apologize this morning if, if I get a little bit emotional with this next one, but it really tugs at my heartstrings every time I see it. Um, this is the bacon maple bar from Rocket Donuts. Yeah. Moves me. It moves me. 
You have not lived until you've tried the bacon maple bar from Rocket Donuts. I actually didn't take this next picture, but it, I think it's so beautiful. It's actually the very first service at CTK Ferndale. And uh, I don't know if you can see, but there's, there's a lot of you in the room are in the, or somewhere up there in that, that congregation. And then this last one in the spirit of Mother's Day, it's Becky and all the kids about five years ago or so, maybe six years ago or so, out in eastern Washington. But I find all these people, places, things beautiful. They stir my heart. And every one of you in the room today has had your heart stirred by something beautiful. Maybe it was a song that just, like, hit you. Maybe you were, you were cruising down Chuckanut Drive on your motorcycle in the fall, and just all the colors, and you, it, it stirred you. Maybe it was a winter sunrise with, with Mount Baker freshly coated in, in, in snow, or your baby's first cry, or watching your daughter walk down the aisle, a grandma's smile. It's different for all of us. But what is the same is, is that something inside of us is stirred by beauty. Now, those who say that God doesn't exist will simply attribute all this to a set of chemical reactions designed to pass on our genetic code. And if this is true, then beauty doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. But even people who say these things keep on living as if beauty matters. I don't know of anybody that that just keeps every single wall in your, your, your house white. You want to paint it colors because, because beauty matters. You, you buy works of art. You plant flowers in your garden. You watch stirring movies. You'll drive hundreds and hundreds of miles to stand on the rim of the Grand Canyon and be mesmerized by it or to drive through Glacier National Park with all the mountains. Beauty matters to all of us at some level. And the question that we have to stop and ask ourselves is why? Why is that? This guy named Arthur uh, Danto, he's an art critic. And he talks about how beauty always gives you a sense that life is not simply a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Instead, it moves you, it fills you with hope and strength to keep going, even though you can't define what it is that moves you. All this points to how eternity has been placed in our hearts by God who creates beauty not just for our enjoyment. He creates beauty to point us where? To point us to him. There's a place in the Bible where it talks about the cedar tree. This kind of uh, this verse that, that, that it's in this, this kind of obscure book, Ezekiel. We don't usually read that a whole lot. But it, it talks about the cedar tree, and it says this. It says, who can be compared with you in majesty, with beautiful branches, overshadowing the forest that towered on high, no tree in the garden of God could match its beauty. Now, we have a lot of cedar trees around here, so we kind of know that this is, this is a beautiful tree. But last summer, I was out at Baker Lake camping with my, my family, and we decided one day to go on a hike down the Baker Lake Trail at the far side of the lake. And uh, if you've ever been back there, you know that there's some gorgeous, gorgeous trees, gorgeous cedar trees. But one cedar tree just kind of stands out above the rest. And I have one more family picture to show you this morning to kind of show you this tree. It's huge. This is not the Redwood Forest. This is two hours driving distance from here. This massive cedar tree. But, but what it does, I mean, you can't stand there and not be moved by the beauty of this tree. It's, it's spectacular. And you can't help but, but 
be moved by the beauty of God. A God, it, it points to God, how God towers above all others. He's a God whose strength is matchless, a God whose robe and majesty, a God whose beauty none can compare to. David was, King David was so captured by the beauty of God, his majesty and wonder, that he, he prayed a prayer that went like this. He said, one thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, and then to do what? To gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Beauty reminds us of what we were made for. It, we were made to worship and adore a great and glorious God, a God who created a world of just indescribable beauty, but a world that nonetheless is broken because of the fall. But could it be that when we behold beauty and it stirs something inside of us, that we are simply being reminded of what we were created for? I love what this, this uh, author, her name is Jill Caratini, says. She says that maybe the glimpses we get of beauty suggest not an escape from reality, but a calling further into it such that when we see the face of God, we shall know that we have always known it. In other words, we see in beauty who God is and the greatness of God and just how spectacular and indescribably worthy of praise he is. Next time you find yourself stirred by beauty, remember who gave you the ability to be moved by it and take a few moments to acknowledge the one who's more worthy and more deserving of honor and praise than any other. So, um, something else inside of us that provides evidence pointing to God are the inner longings that we just can't ignore. We all have inner longings. There's, there's three that I want to talk about, but every single person in this room, every single person on the planet has these, these longings. And the first is a, a desire for purpose. Now, if God didn't exist, life has no meaning whatsoever. You and me are just the product of a freak accident that happened in space millions of years ago, and, and life has evolved into what we know it, and life has, is meaningless. It's, it's without meaning. But you and I both know that we are not okay with that answer. We're not okay with saying, no, there's, there's no meaning in life. We, we long for purpose. We long for, for meaning, to know that our life matters. In the movie Rocky, he's with his girlfriend, Adrian, and Adrian asks him why it's so important for him to go the distance in the boxing match, to which he looks at her and he says, then I'll know I'm not a bum. In another movie, Chariots of Fire, you might remember the scene if you've ever seen it. It's a classic old movie. But, but there's this scene where he's talking about how he, he, he has to run the 100-yard dash and why it's, it, it means so much to him. And he says this. He says that before each race begins, I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. Both of these men, they want life to have meaning. So what do they do? These guys try to find it in athletic achievement. Other people try to find it in, in career achievement, just advancing up the ladder. Other people try to find meaning in having a family. Other people try to find it in, in fighting social injustice. But we all want meaning. Viktor Frankl, he wrote this book titled Man's Search for Meaning. He wrote in it, uh, just to describe his experience as a prisoner in Auschwitz, one of the most brutal Nazi concentration camps. And he, he, he noticed something in that camp. He noticed that after witnessing and surviving all the, the horrors of that camp, that, that those in captivity who clung to some sense of meaning in the midst of the madness, they were able to survive. Whereas those who lost any sense of meaning, who just became numb with all the brutality around them, day in and day out, they, they would inevitably die. 
And he quoted this, uh, this well-known philosopher, Frederick Nietzsche, who said this. He said, he who has a why to live for can bear with almost any how. And Frankel's going, he, he discovered that he had something to live for, and it kept him going even in the midst of such brutal circumstances. Humans long for meaning and purpose. We just do. Is it any wonder that, that the best-selling book of our time, only second to the Bible, is a book called The Purpose Driven Life? And that's just not talking Christian circles. That's talking worldwide. This book has sold over 60 million copies. It's been translated into 130 languages. People are searching for purpose. They're searching for meaning. And again, we have to stop and we have to ask ourselves, why is this? Why do, why do we need to have purpose? Why do we long for meaning? Well, the Bible, it, it, it answers that question by telling us that God was the one who gave us meaning and purpose. Beginning at creation, the Bible says, God created mankind, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and over every living creature that moves on the ground. He gave us purpose. He says, I've got, I've got a job for you to do. Rule the earth, subdue it, work the earth. In another place in Scripture, it says this, For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Did you catch that? He's given us this plan. He's given us this purpose that's very specific to each of us. I find that liberating and just invigorating to know that okay, my life has purpose. God's given me purpose. But above all, there's one purpose that God has given all of us. You don't have to wander through life going, okay, what's the, what's the meaning of everything? What's the reason for everything? Why are we here? Why, why am I here? What, what is this all about? You don't have to ask that question because the Bible makes it very clear what, what it's all about, what the meaning of everything is. It's written all throughout the pages of Scripture, but there's one passage in Isaiah 43 that, that just sums it up best where God describes his people saying this. He says, the people I formed for myself that they may proclaim my praise. Chris Tomlin wrote a song one time that had these simple words, you and I were made for worship. We're made for worship. It's our ultimate purpose in life. In our longing for purpose, it points to how life is not random. It's not a meaningless accident. It reveals how eternity has been set, it's been set in our hearts. C.S. Lewis, he was this um, author from the 20th century, and uh, if you're a doubter or you're a skeptic when it comes to God and Christianity, and if you are, i got to say, we're really glad that you've joined us this morning. But if you're in that boat, you have to read C.S. Lewis's book called Mere Christianity, where he just unpacks God. And, and C.S. Lewis, he started as this adamant atheist, but as he dug into things, he all of a sudden, he, he switched. But when it comes to purpose, he, he made a great point. He said this in his book. He said, consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. If the whole universe has no meaning, we should never have found out that it has no meaning. We should have never found that out. But something inside of us says, no, there's got to be meaning. There's got to be purpose. Something else that we long for is love. You can't escape this. You can't hide from this. It doesn't matter if your friends and family annoy you. It doesn't matter if they've done things to hurt you, to disappoint you, to cause you pain. It doesn't matter. At some point... You will eventually go searching for relationship. You have this need for love. And again, we have to stop and go, why is that? 
To which the Bible gives a clear answer. It says, it says, dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. God is love. It was the eternal God who made us in his image, who stamped this need for love on our hearts. God put it there. Another longing and desire that we have is for joy. Now, it doesn't matter what, what you call it. Sometimes in Christian circles, we get all caught up around the semantics around this. You can call it joy. You can call it happiness. You can call it delight, pleasure, whatever. It's all kind of describing the same thing. But, but there's not a person on the planet who does not want this. Not a person. And so what do we do? We all search for it. We try to find it by building our homes. We try to find it by earning a paycheck or going out and buying a, a new car or, or a new phone or by eating or exercising or doing some kind of hobby or getting in a relationship with that guy or that girl. We, we, we want to be happy. We want, we want joy. It's so important in our country that our forefathers decided they're going to they're gonna protect the pursuit of happiness within the Declaration of Independence. Now, if we're just molecules... And atoms joined together, randomly floating through time and space. You got to ask, why did we have this need? Where, where does this need for joy come from? Well, the Bible says, again, it says it's from God. He put it there. We've been created in, in, a, in the image of a God who is full of joy. Uh, and so we, too, we, we long for joy. It's a joy that can only be satisfied in Jesus. And so Jesus comes along and, li and listen to his words. He says this. He says, I have told you this. So that my joy, so there you have it, he, he's a God of joy. If your picture of Jesus is somebody who's depressed all the time and just sad and just moping, moping th through life and just, and just has a hard time getting up in the morning, that's not, that's, not, that's not the God that we serve. He's a God who's full of joy. And he says this, I, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be Another time he said, whoever drinks the water that I give them will never thirst. All these longings, this longing for joy, this longing for love, this longing for purpose, it, they all come from God. He put those inside of us. And the evidence is there. You just have to stop and go, okay, why is it there? Deep within, deep within inside of your soul and my soul are these longings. And it's God whispering to us. He's saying, you know what's right because of me. You, you want joy because of me. Your, your heart is stirred by beauty because of me. You long for, for, for meaning and purpose and love because of me. But today, you got to know something about God. He doesn't just want you to, to, to know all this so that you can stand back and go, okay, yeah, there must be a God out there. He wants you to know all this because he wants you to find all that in him. He wants you to come to him, the, the one who who is the living water, the bread of life. And, and you will always be searching for these things until you come to Jesus. I love what this, um, this uh, theologian guy, his name is Augustine, he said this way back hundreds of years ago. Um, he prayed this prayer. He said, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. God's made us for himself, and he he, he puts whisperings in our soul that will lead us to him. In our hearts, we'll stay restless until they rest in Jesus. And this morning, God is inviting you today not just to, to hear the evidence about who he is, but he's inviting you to find him, to put your faith and trust in him, to, to go to him and let him be the one who ultimately satisfies 
all the stirrings of your heart and soul that he put there. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, you are good. You're gracious. Lord, you are all beautiful. You're all satisfying. There's nobody like you. Lord, you are worthy of all of our praise. God, we look at creation and go, wow, God, you are, you're amazing. God, the way you love us, the way you care for us, the way you lavish your grace on us through the cross. God, you are so worthy. And, and Father, I just want to pray this morning that, that, Lord, God, as we talked about these different longings and stirrings in our heart, God, that point us to you, I pray, Jesus, that, Lord, um, Father, we would find you in that. That, God, this wouldn't just be about getting some more information this morning, but, God, I pray that, Lord, for that person this morning that hears you whispering to their soul, saying, come and find joy and love and meaning and beauty in me. God, I pray that they would go to you. They would find you in this, Jesus. That they would open up their hearts to you, Jesus. Not keep their hearts closed to you. And just, in light of all the evidence, say, no, I'm still not going to believe. God, I pray this morning that something would happen in their hearts. And that they would say, Jesus, God, show me yourself. I'm coming to you. Put my faith and trust in you, Jesus. God, I want to thank you that, Lord, you don't leave us on our own to, to find you. But, God, you... You put, you put eternity in our hearts, God, to lead us to yourself, to lead us to yourself. Father, I just want to thank you, God, again for each person that's here. God, I thank you all for all the moms that are here. God, I pray that you would just make yourself known to them. God, I pray that you would be with them in a, a, just a, a way today, God, where they just know that you care about them so, so much. God, regardless of the circumstances that they might find themselves in, God, I pray that they would just find you comforting, comforting them. God, affirming them, lifting them up in your hands. God, strengthening them. God, I pray that you do this. And Lord, I pray that, that this, this day, God, we would experience your blessing and your favor and your goodness and your face just shining on us in a powerful way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.